Good morning, Bay Hills. Grab the study guide that's in your program. Turn in your Bibles or in your phones to 1 Kings 19. 1 Kings 19, it's going to be page 355. If you're using one of the church Bibles, 355 as you guys are turning there. You know, most of the weeks we're in this series, we're looking at uh, earthquakes in the Bible and their significance and their meaning and so on and so forth. And, uh, and it, it, But and every once in a while, I'm bumping into basically science related to earthquakes as I'm doing a little bit of extra study. I guess I should have known this, but let me show you this next map. Let's put it on the screen. I did not realize that almost all of the earthquakes that we have, these are the last earthquakes since the 1900, all the dots, they all occur, or almost all of them occur, in the ocean or a body of water or right on the coast. I I don't know why I didn't know that, but especially look at the left side of the screen, North America and South America. I mean, it's just, it's all on the coast, okay? I didn't know that. There's got to be some science behind that, but uh, I guess that's why they say and talk about California falling into the ocean is because where the earthquakes are happening. Now, just uh, as you guys are still turning, a couple images of some of the more powerful earthquakes we've had in the last decade or so. China, May 12th, 2008, 7.9 on the Richter scale. Japan, March 11, 2011, 9.1 on the Richter scale, second most powerful earthquake in the last 100 years. By the way, one of the issues uh, with earthquakes and and what causes all the damage, it's not necessarily the earthquake, it's the tsunami that follows the earthquake. And so you have images like what you have on the screen of, you know, boats in the middle of neighborhoods because the tsunami, you know, took things in. Ecuador, April 16th, 2016, 7.8. Um, Ecuador, their infrastructure and highways and such isn't the greatest, and it just demolished them. Uh, the greatest earthquake in terms of loss of life, Indonesia, the day after Christmas, 2004, quarter of a million people died in that earthquake. Absolutely devastating. And then the closest one to us and most recent, Mexico, September the 8th. 2017. Now, we, we've mentioned it every week. I'm going to keep mentioning it. You know, we're studying the meaning of earthquakes in the Bible. And I think some of us, by accident, instinctively are going to take that, that concept and trying to find meaning in earthquakes today. And I, I want to make sure you understand, as best as we can tell, the earthquakes that we are experiencing around the world today is not the result of God trying to teach us a lesson or something. He's not trying to make a point. So we didn't have this big earthquake in Mexico City because God's trying to, I don't know, teach the drug cartel down there something. It's just, it's very simply, the Apostle Paul tells us in Roman, the earth is groaning. Okay, And what that means is that sin has so infected every part of everything that we see, including our planet Earth, that it results in some very ugly things called natural disasters. That's what we think is happening. Okay, And now I will say, Scripture does mention that as we approach the end times, the frequency of earthquakes and the magnitude of earthquakes will, will, will rise. You go on Wikipedia, you go on any site that talk about earthquakes, all the scientists are saying that's happening in this last hundred years. It's, it's very interesting how science and, and the Bible are overlapping. And so it, we don't have time to go into that in our series. Um, by now, you should be at 1 Kings 19. The earthquake we're going to look at today is, is a personal encounter that a guy by the name of Elijah has with God. 1 Kings 19, here's what we read. The Lord said, speaking to Elijah... I want you to go out and I want you to to stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind 
tore through the mountains apart, uh, uh, tore the mountains apart and shattered the rocks. Notice the wind in and of itself has the impact of what, what we think earthquakes should have. Shatters the mountains and the rocks. But, but the Lord was not in the wind, it says. After the wind, there was an earthquake. Here's our earthquake, Kings 19, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. After the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in a fire. If you grab your study guide, here's what we're going to do. We're going to start by asking two questions that very quickly get us into the context and into the theme of what we're covering this morning. And the first question is, what's up with the earthquake? We're asking it every week. What's up with this particular earthquake? Now, of all the weeks, this one was easy. The, the, the Bible exegesis interpretation was so easy because just by reading it very simply, there's words that pop off the page that make it very evident. What is God trying to do? Well, what he's trying to do is Elijah go stand on the mountain, right? And these three supernatural events are going to occur back to back to back. This powerful wind, this powerful earthquake, and this powerful fire. What, what's going on here very simply is that God is trying to make sure Elijah knows, and listen carefully, you know. I, I need you to remember, don't forget, I am present in your life. And because I am present in your life, I am also powerful to change and transform what's going on in your life. That's what he's trying to do. Now, what should catch your attention if you read the story of 1 Kings is the timing of why God says this. I mentioned this because when you read the story of Elijah, he has just he has just come off. I mean, you talk about it's happening in chapter 18, verse 16, Elijah on Mount Carmel. He's coming off the ministry highlight of his entire life. Here's what happens in in chapter 18. You've got the one prophet of Yahweh, God of the Bible. His name is Elijah. And he squares off with 450 pagan prophets of the God Baal. And and, and basically they face each other off. And they want, will the the real God please stand up? And we're going to have a cage match between Baal and Yahweh God. And when it's all said and done, when you read the entire story, oh my goodness gracious, it's so unbelievable obvious that Yahweh God of the Bible is the undisputed heavyweight champion of the universe. And Elijah, he gloats and he's cocky and he kept, I told you so, right? He's on a ministry and an emotional high. Except less than a chapter later, God has to remind him, don't forget, I'm present and I'm powerful. Why does he have to remind him of that if he just experienced power and presence of God? What is going on? Well, what's going on in the life of Elijah is what happens with many of us sometimes. We agree with what's on the screen theologically, but we fail to implement it behaviorally. If we had an usher on the way in and they were taking a survey and everybody that came in asked you two questions about God. So, We're curious. Do you believe God is present in your life? Yes or no. Do you believe God has power to transform your life? Yes or no. My guess is that most of us would say yes. I'm in. I believe that. The problem is that some of us aren't living that. It's one thing to know it here. It's another thing to have it come out here. That's the issue. So it's not that Elijah doesn't know this. It's that he's not living this. And it's a problem that not only 
Elijah that many of us have. Okay, you got my attention. So what, what's, what's going on with Elijah? That's question number two. What's happening with him? Well, in 1 Kings chapter 19, verse 4, let's put the next slide up there. What's up with Elijah? Here's what we read. Elijah went on a day's journey into the wilderness. Anytime in the Old Testament the word wilderness is used, uh, a red flag should come up and give you some indication that what's coming is not good. It, it's code for you're not where you should be. Elijah went a day's journey into the wilderness. He came to a bush. He sat down under it. And he prayed that he might die. I've had enough, Lord. So I'm throwing in the towel. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. God finds it necessary to remind Elijah and to remind many of us here today. Don't forget I am present in your life and because I am present, I have the power to change and transform your life. Don't forget that. Why does he have to say that to Elijah? Because Elijah would freely admit, I'm depressed beyond belief. To the point of having suicidal thoughts. Twice, he says, I want to die. Just, I'm done, God. Some of you know, uh, my undergraduate degree is in business and psychology. So I, I could take the time to unpack the layers of disappointment, discouragement, depression, but I don't want to take the time and it, it, it's not going to help us in terms of where we're going. What I really want to do is I want to ask you an over, overly simple question that gets to the root of what we're going to talk about this morning. Anyone bummed out this morning? I don't care whether you call it discouragement or depression. Anyone bummed out? It's interesting that studies say that at any given time, one in four Americans is experiencing some form of disappointment or discouragement. A quarter of us. It could be something relatively small, relatively simple, you know, but it's still discouraging. Something with your kids, something, something with your job, something with the housing, something with your health. It's not huge, but it's still, it's disappointing. It's discouraging. Or it could be something as serious as what Elijah's going through. You're actually having suicidal thoughts. If you're anywhere near to this, could I just please encourage you, reach out to, to one of our staff members, to me, to a small group leader, to a counselor, to a teacher, to a parent. Please don't keep that to yourself. I, I don't care what, what, where you are on the spectrum. If you're bummed out here this morning for whatever reason, what, I, what you need to know is God wants to help. He wants to help. So that's where we're going, okay? Now, when I read the first couple verses about the earthquake, I, I read it fast enough that I, I'm not sure all of you picked up on a repetitive verse or, or, or phrase that keeps coming up. Let me show you what I mean. Let's put it on the screen. You've got these three supernatural events that are pretty special. But it's very clear in the passage, the Lord was, was not in the wind. The Lord was not in the earthquake. The Lord was not in this miraculous fire. Now, he caused all of them, but he, he's not going to speak to Elijah through them. And then you have this next little phrase that is just absolutely fascinating to me. Let's put it on the screen. It says this. It says, after the fire, after these three supernatural events, came a gentle whisper from God. 
and Elijah heard. You know what I've noticed is that when you and I have crisis, when you and I have problems, when you and I have issues, very rarely, very rarely does God speak through huge, superhuman, supernatural, earth-moving events like an earthquake. He can do that, but normally he doesn't do that. Normally when we have crisis and problems and issues, you know what he does? He's not going to yell advice at you. He's going to whisper. And when someone whispers, you've got to pay close attention or you'll miss it. I actually thought at some point in time, my study this week, I thought, wow, that, that's kind of powerful there. Maybe I should whisper the rest of my sermon. <laughs> and then I came to my senses and I, I don't think I was, I think I made my point, right? You got to pay attention. And I'm desperately praying that, that, you don't, that you don't leave here hearing the words from Dave, but in between my words, you hear the whisper of God who's trying to speak to some of you and encourage you. On the backside of your study guide, here's what we're going to do as we keep moving. Um, we're going to talk about wh- why do we get bummed out? Why do we get discouraged or depressed? In retrospect, I probably should have changed that a little bit. I, I should have probably said how Elijah became discouraged and depressed. I don't want you to think that this is a comprehensive list. It covers a lot of areas, but there are other contributing factors that could affect how I'm feeling emotionally. So I just want to make sure and get that out there. We're looking at Elijah. I think we'll recognize a lot of these in us at times if we're feeling discouraged. The first one is unfulfilled expectations. Now, to understand what's going on here, just for the moment, we're going to go back one chapter to this super story of Mount Carmel and the prophets and against, against Elijah and Baal against Yahweh God. And, and after it all happens, God kicks butt. All the prophets of Baal are dead. This is what we read. Kings 18.39. When all the people saw this, they fell prostrate to the ground and they cried, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And you can almost imagine Elijah taking a deep breath and going, finally, this is what I've been trying to get them to do. Finally, they're repenting. They're turning to God. There's going to be revival in my land, except it doesn't happen right away. It's kind of interesting. They, they, they see God work powerfully. They fall to their, their, their knees and they worship him, but they don't necessarily, their lives aren't necessarily changed and transformed. So very quickly, Elijah's like, really? After seeing what you just saw, not even that is going to cause you to repent and turn to God? Really? Goodness gracious me. See, here's the thing. When you and I have hopes and you and I have dreams and you and I have expectations, some of them very reasonable as it relates to life. And those dreams, expectations and hopes fall flat. They're unfulfilled. It can lead to disappointment. And Elijah was disappointed because what he most desperately and wanted people to turn to God didn't happen. Here's how it works for us. Let me see if you recognize any of these in your life at any point in time. You'd hope to be married by now. But you haven't found that special person yet. You wanted to start your own business. Hasn't happened. You were a pretty good athlete in college and high school and you thought there was maybe a possibility of going pro and you have no chance. You were, wanted to be a writer, wanted to be an architect, wanted to be a chef and own your own restaurant. That hasn't happened. 
you've always wanted to own a home. I know it's expensive in the Bay Area, but I don't want to rent. I want to own my own home. And Nope. You got married and you wanted to have kids and for some reason you just, we don't have kids. You expected to be with your spouse forever till death do us part and that didn't work out. You had kids and you had hopes for them and you had dreams for them and aspirations of what they could become and it, it's turned out that one of your kids or a couple of them have headed in the wrong direction and you had a vision of what retirement would look like. You thought your career, your job would be at a completely different stage in life than it is today. I mean, I could go on and on. You get the picture, right? We've got these dreams. We've got these hopes. I'm not asking for the moon. But they fall flat. And it contributes to disappointment. Now, this is the, this is the moment that it's very important for me to acknowledge. Listen to me very, very carefully. It's okay. It's normal to feel that way. I would even dare say it's healthy. If, you, if, you, if there's something that you desire and it's good and it's wholesome and, and even maybe godly and you desire that and it doesn't happen, it's okay to be disappointed. In fact, in some cases, when something happens to you, I'm more concerned for you if you're not disappointed because you're not a robot. We're human beings that have emotions. And I want to acknowledge that uh, right now that sadness is not an unchristian emotion. One of the worst things we can do to people close to us that are sad is rush them through their sadness. Come on, girl, get over it. Let them be for a little bit. Don't give them a chance to work their way out of it. Now, having said that and acknowledged that, it's okay if occasionally you're feeling discouraged. It's not okay to stay discouraged. So that I'm trying to acknowledge the truth of sadness, but God, God understands that, but he doesn't want to leave you there. Okay? Unfulfilled expectations. The next one is difficult, stressful people can create discouragement and depression. 19, verse 1. Now Ahab, he was the king, told Jezebel, she was the queen, everything that Elijah had done. He confronted the prophets and they killed him. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel, the queen, sent a messenger to Elijah to say to him, may the gods deal with me. Notice small g. So she, she's not, she's not repented. She's not, there's no revival going on with her. Oh no, no, I'm not backing down. May the gods deal with me ever so severely. If by this time tomorrow, I do not make your life like the lives of the prophets. In other words, you know what she's saying? I'm going to kill you. That's what she's saying. You got 24 hours. I'm taking you out. The next phrase kind of makes sense. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. Here's what you need to know. If you don't know the story of Elijah uh, or of Jezebel, Jezebel is the Maleficent of the Old Testament. Incredibly mean, incredibly cruel, incredibly evil, and a thorn in Elijah's side. You know, one of the details that I find uh, of this story um, that she sends Elijah a messenger to tell him you're going to die next, tomorrow. Question, why didn't she just send an assassin? I mean, the messenger found him. Why delay? Why not just send someone to chop his head off now? You know what commentators speculate? 
Because Jezebel is the kind of person that likes to create anxiety. She enjoys creating stress in other people. She doesn't want Elijah to sleep tonight. He, she wants him to know and be on edge all day looking to someone coming to get me. I got one day left. She is not a nice person. Question. Do you have a Jezebel in your life? Or two or three or five? Huh? There's Jezebels at work, right? There's Jezebels at home. There's Jezebels at school. There's Jezebels at church. Not this service, mainly first service, but they're everywhere. Okay? I want you to think, right? I want you to think, not necessarily of someone who's evil. Think of of someone in your life that drains you, sucks the light after you. I need you to get it in your mind. You guys got it. We're going to do an exercise right now. Do you have that person in your mind? Okay? Here's what we're going to do. On the count of three, we're going to say that person out loud. One, two... No. Some of you were like taking a breath, ready to say it. I am going to say their name, stand and point at them. I'm going to get this out of my system. No. Difficult people, draining people, stressful people can contribute to discouragement. They did for, for Elijah. The next one is lack of support, lack of companionship. First Kings 19, second part of verse three, when Elijah came to Beersheba in Judah, he left his servant there while he himself went on a day's journey into the wilderness. Here's the key. When he most needed a friend, when he most needed a companion, when he most needed support, we read that he dismisses his servant and he goes by himself. It has been said that depressed people tend to be lonely people. I don't know what it is, but some of us, when we have issues, when we have crisis, when we have problems, there's a, there's a, a whole bunch of us that have a tendency to, to hide that, to keep that to ourselves. We don't share. And, and I don't know why that is. I, I, I don't know if, if maybe if you're honest, there's a little bit of pride. Maybe there's a little bit of shame. I can't believe my life turned out this way. Maybe there's a little bit of self-sufficiency. I'm a big boy. I can handle this on my own. I don't need help. Maybe I've heard this. Sometimes I don't want to. They have enough problems of their own. I don't want to add and share my problems with them. I don't know what it is, why it is that when you have a problem, when we have a crisis, when there's issues in our life, we keep it to ourselves. But I'm here to tell you that instinct is wrong. It's a wrong instinct. Now, I am not suggesting, we covered this in our hashtag struggle series. I'm not suggesting you put it on social media. That's a different, I don't think you should do that. Not the big issues, right? I broke my toe, okay, big deal. But something else, not on Facebook. But what I am telling you is I need you to remember that this book over and over and over and over again says this, carry each other's burdens. But here's the thing, here's what that means. That means when you're going through a problem, when I'm going through a problem, we help each other out. That could be I'm just a listening board. That could be an encouraging word. Keep going. Keep fighting, boy. Keep fighting, girl. It could be advice. Oh, you're not thinking about that. It could be anything. But how can you carry my burden if I never share my burden? I don't get it. I really don't understand how on the one hand we say we believe in prayer, but there's not a lineup over there at the prayer room every Sunday to say, I got this issue. Can you take three minutes and pray with me? I don't understand how when we go to small group, and by the way, this is a huge part of small group. 
Even more important than Bible study is this fellowship, companionship, and community. When the leader says, let's go around, does anybody have any prayer requests? And you bite your tongue. I don't get that. I'm here to tell you, you've got to dig deep and figure out what is it inside of you that's keeping you from sharing? What is it inside of you who, like Elijah, dismisses the servant, the friend, when what you should do is being vulnerable and sharing with at least a few people? This lack of support and companionship certainly contributed to his discouragement. The next one doesn't sound spiritual, but it's very important. Physical exhaustion. Physical exhaustion. I want you to notice as I read verses 5 through 8, all the, all the words that refer to anatomy or the physical side to who we are. So Elijah lay down under the bush and fell asleep. So he takes a nap. Okay? And all at once, an angel touched him and said, Elijah, get up. You need to eat. Elijah looked around and there by his head was some bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. So Elijah ate and he drank. Notice he lay down again. He's taken two naps in the afternoon. The angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him again and said, I need you to get right back up and eat again. You you know what's contributing to his discouragement? It's very simple. He's exhausted. His diet and nutrition is off. And he's not getting enough rest. You need to understand, we have a tendency to compartmentalize our lives. I have the career side of me, and I have the family side of me, and I have the spiritual side of me, and I have the financial side of me, and I have the emotional side of me, and I have the intellectual side of me, and they're all pieces to my pie of who I am. And I want to say you're much more complex than you realize. And what happens in one compartment in your life always has a tendency to bleed over and impact other compartments of your life. And what I'm telling you is if something is off physically in your life, at some point in time, it will always, every single time, impact you emotionally. Every time. It could be as simple as Elijah. He's not eating well and he's not sleeping enough. The most godly thing some of you could do this afternoon is go home and take a nap. You look awful. You really do. (laughs) You're not resting enough. Or your physical issue could be much more serious. It could be chemical imbalance. It could be a tumor. There's some very serious physical issues that contribute to how we're feeling emotionally. And here's all I'm saying. You've got to figure it out. The last, the last thing that contributes to the discouragement of Elijah is unhealthy and untrue thoughts. Verse 9 and 10, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. So God asked him a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? God would ask some of you the same question today. Why so bummed? What, what's going on? Elijah's like, you want to know why I'm bummed? I'll tell you why I'm bummed. Here's what he says. I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. This is code for him saying, you know, I volunteered and I stuffed eggs at the Easter egg hunt and I'm an usher once every quarter and I help with the youth group and then I'm leading Bible study and I'm helping hospitality and I've got the church folding bulletins for you. I'm working for you. You want to know why I'm bummed? I'm doing all this for you. Check this out. He says this, but the Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've torn down your altars. They've put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. That's why I'm bummed. One small 
problem with his response. It's all untrue. Every single bit of it. It's all untrue. Let me just take one, one by one. There's no they trying to kill you. There's no they. It's one woman, Jezebel. And every man will tell you at some point in time in your life, you've had one woman want to kill you, right? That wasn't in my notes. It just slipped out. But So don't, there's no they. There's no they. It's one person that, that's against you, right? You do know not everybody likes you, right? Get over it. One person, just Jezebel, no they. In fact, her husband Ahab is starting to warm up to Elijah. Second of all, you say that, that, that all God's people are tearing down the altars. Wrong. Just a chapter earlier, God's people build an altar. Exactly the opposite. So you got that wrong. And then the last thing, you're not the only one left, Elijah. We're going to see in just another chapter or two, there are thousands of prophets that have remained faithful to God. So Elijah, uh, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong. All three of them. Now watch, follow me really carefully. What you think, what your theology is, what your doctrine is, how you process life right here, what you think of your family, what you think of your marriage, what you think of your career, what you think of your finances, what you think of your relationships, what you think about life. If it is wrong, untrue, or unhealthy, every time, it will impact your behavior and your emotions every time. It's just a matter of when. You want to know what makes this incredibly sad? If, if you have a Bible, look at verse 13. Look at verse 13 real quick. If you don't have your Bible open, doesn't matter. You know why? Verse 13, Elijah says the exact same thing again, word for word. The exact same thing. Here's the thing. Elijah's not trying to deceive God. He's not trying to lie to God. We have other stories like that, like Ananias and Sapphira and people. He's not trying to deceive God at all. No, he actually believes this to be true. And now in less than three verses, he's verbalized it twice. And here's what happens. The minute you believe something that's untrue, and the minute you start verbalizing something that's untrue, eventually you actually start believing that it is true. And now we're in deep trouble. Because you got to rewind, rewind, rewind and go back to domino number one because you are way far ahead of where you should be. So here's, here's our summary. Do you recognize yourself? If you're bummed out, do you see something on the screen? You had hopes and dreams, expectations, and they're unfulfilled. You got some challenging, difficult people in your life that are just draining you. You lack companionship. You know, in retrospect, I probably would use a different word. Companionship suggests, you know, do you have friends? It's more than that. I probably should have used the word community. This idea that you're, you're going deeper with people, right? Physical exhaustion, you're just pooped. Or unhealthy thoughts. Do you recognize yourself? Last couple minutes, what do I do? What do we do? I'm going to give you three suggestions. They, some of them, obviously, are going to overlap with what we just talked about. Number one is balance your relationships. Balance your relationships. We all have a Jezebel or several in our life, but do you have an Elisha? You go, who, who's that dude? Well, he's coming up in the story right, right after this account in chapter 19, verse uh, 19. Elisha gets introduced. 
Let me just say this to you. He's a good guy. He's got his head screwed on straight. He loves the Lord. And he's encouraging to Elijah. See, see here's the thing. If, if Jezebel, if these are the people that drain us, that exhaust us, and that stress us, that suck the life out of us, Elisha-type people are individuals that encourage us and motivate us and fill us. When you spend time with the Elishas in your life, you know, the time flies by and you, you, you leave their presence skipping, right? So I got two questions to you as it relates to this. Question number one, which one of you, which one of you are you most like on the screen? The people closest to you, would they describe you as a Jezebel? You suck the life out of them? Or would they describe you as Elisha? You fill them. You know, it's been said, one in three Americans. One in three Americans is very difficult to get along with. Now, I want you to think about your three closest friends. If they're all seem normal and nice, you know what that means? You're Jezebel. I mean, we love you and all, but you are sucking the life right out of us. And so part of this is you having the maturity to make some tweaks. Don't, don't force me to just talk to your spouse who's depressed or your kid who's depressed or your coworker who's depressed. Part of the reason they're feeling that way is you. So I love you, but grow up. Okay? Second question is... Oh, let's go back. I'm not done with this. I'm still going to keep going on Jezebel here for a second. Do you have enough Elishas to counteract your Jezebels? Don't make the mistake of assuming you can eliminate Jezebel from your life. There are difficult people everywhere. And in some cases, God puts them in our life so that we can minister to them. They, they are. They're at home and they're at work and they're at school and they're at church and they're in the neighborhood. They're everywhere. It's not about eliminating them from our lives. It's about counteracting them with Elisha. You've got to find the deep friendships that can build into you and that can help you and that can tweak your thinking when you're wrong. And I'm just going to throw out just a quick statement. The, the, the best Elishas in your life, in my opinion, are spirit-filled, Bible-believing, Christ-following individuals. Does that mean that an unsaved person can't encourage you? No, I have unsaved friends and I love them and they encourage me. But, but only a Bible-believing, spirit-filled, Christ-following individual, that is the person that when I'm thinking wrong, they have enough sense of what's going on in here and I might need them to tweak my thinking a little bit. I want Bible perspective on crisis and problems, not just life perspective. So I'm just saying, you got to find some more Elishas. Second thing is renew yourself physically. Renew yourself physically. First Kings chapter 19. So after he eats and after he takes his nap, it says Elijah got up, ate, drank, and he was, he was strengthened. He was strengthened physically, which thereby eventually resulted in him being strengthened emotionally. I don't know if you guys are like this, but Sandy and I, we're at, we're at our stage in our life where when a birthday comes around and Christmas comes around, well, what do you want, babe? Well, I don't know. What do you want? We can't figure out like what we want. We could... Pick, oh, give me another golf club, but I don't really need it or want it or what. I'm just kind of coming up with stuff so someone can give me something, right? So this Christmas, this Christmas, I'm not saying you shouldn't give me gifts. I love gifts. I'm just saying, I don't know what to tell you. So this Christmas, 
Uh, Sandy and I said, you know what? We, we've always talked about this. Let's buy a treadmill, a really good treadmill. We like, a, you know, we want to stay fit, but we don't, our lie, we can't get to the gym. And I it just, let's put it in the back room. It's open now. You know, we'll put it right by the flat screen TV. We've had it. I have loved it. Absolutely. I hate jogging, hate walking. I'm bored to tears doing that kind of stuff. But now I got my flat screen TV. I'm watching the war. I'm multitasking. And you know me, I got a little ADHD in me. I get bored quickly, right? I kid you not. The other day, I'm jogging on the treadmill. I'm watching the Warriors. I'm listening to a leadership podcast. And I'm having a meaningful conversation with my wife. All at the same time. I mean, I am getting it all in. No. We have a family series coming up here in two, three months. I'm assuming you're here because you want to be spiritually healthy. That's what I'm assuming. Let me hear, listen to me carefully. If you want to be spiritually healthy, that includes trying to be physically healthy. We're told that our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit. You've got to be, you know what? It, it, it could, I am not your, your, your personal trainer and I am not your nutritionist. I'm your pastor. And as your pastor, I'm telling you, some of us need to pay more attention to our diet and to our weight. And to how much we're resting and to exercise and to smoking habits and to drinking habits and vitamins or what I, I figure it out. We're all different ages and healthy means different for different stages. And you've got to figure this out. Why? Why? Because it's a spiritual matter. And for the sake of our discussion, it's going to impact you emotionally at some point. You know what I've discovered? I've discovered I, I have a job that can be at times a little stressful. It's basically you, but basically, you know, it can be a little stressful. And what I thank you very much, sister. What I've noticed, what I've noticed about myself is there's a lot of times I go to sleep at night and my, my mind is tired, but my body is not. And so it's like all night. I can't really rest because my mind's going and how do we fix that? And how do we solve that? And I'm, I'm kind of half praying for this person and that when I exercise, oh, I, I sleep so much better. That's all I'm saying is there's an overlap. So pay some attention to it. Last thing I'm going to point out to you, and I'm going to have the band come up. We're wrapping up. You got to prioritize time with God. Do not miss the emphasis of this story. God says to Elijah and God says to you, I need need you to come to the mountain of the Lord and I need you to be in my presence. Come in my presence and know that I have the power to change and transform your life. It's the power of God and it's his presence. Jesus was once quoted as saying, come to me if you're weary and burdened. You bummed out? Come. And I'm going to give you rest. Make sure you balance your relationships. Make sure you're aware physically of what's going on. You've got to put some attention. That it doesn't sound spiritual, but it is. And three, prioritize your time with God. Don't turn your relationship with God into a microwave relationship. I'm going to give him three, five minutes, quick, couple days a week. I'm not saying that's wrong. You've got to dig deep a little bit more with God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there's a number of us here that for whatever reasons are feeling a little bit bummed out. I pray that what we've studied this morning would be helpful, practical, so that we could start to bounce back. Father, we know that we're in your presence. 
And we know that being in your presence, you are an almighty God, all powerful. And you have the ability to help us. So we claim that and we ask that in Jesus name. As heads are bowed and eyes are closed. One of the things that I've realized and noticed that sometimes the best way to end our study time is to implement it with worship time. To, to stop engaging our minds and to start engaging our souls. And we're going to wrap up our study time and we're going to sing a song. It's very simple. It's very repetitive on purpose because some of us need to hear it over and, and over and over again. And there's two lines that get repeated. There is power in the name of Jesus. There's power in his name. There's power in the relationship that is Jesus. And then there's this phrase. It says, there's power to break every chain. To break the chain of addiction you have in your life. To break the chain of pride that you have in your life. The bitterness that you have in your life. To break the chain of lust that you have in your life. To break the chain that is fear and worry that you have in your life. And to break the chain that is discouragement. There is power in the name of Jesus. What I'd like you to do over the next three, four minutes is whatever most ministers to you. If you want to sit and soak these words in, then you do that. If you want to stand and sing, then you can do that. Don't forget, there's power in the name of Jesus. Power to break every chain. Every problem.